0: अतो सम्मा bhagavato नमो तस्मा भगवतो अरहतो सम्मा संबुधसा नमो तस्सा भगवतो अरहतो सम्मा संबुधसा And this evening, uh, I thought I might talk about thinking, a uh, favorite subject. (coughs) Oftentimes in um, meditation circles, in um, in Buddhist meditation in particular, Conceptual thought tends to get the same kind of um, rap that the ego does, like, bad, don't want, get rid of, and that when we've got rid of it, then everything will be fine, um, is a general assumption. And uh, this is, it's very understandable um, that we should look at it in that way, um, our, uh, particularly in the West, our minds are, are trained to think um, uh, to a, uh, an incredible degree. We spend years and years, you know, maybe 15, maybe 20 years um, of, educa- <coughs> of education, training our minds to, to think, um, to create concepts, to juggle them, to um, compare them, judge them and uh we get praised for our ability to do that, yeah you know. so when we we uh then feel ourselves burdened by the amount of thinking that's going on that within our minds that it just won't stop um you know we're or that if we we um say want to develop some kind of peacefulness and calmness and then we try to to focus the mind but it's just kind of charging off here there and everywhere and chattering away insanely you know all day and much of the night then um we um we tend to bemoan the fact that you know, that there's so much thinking going on but uh, I think we <coughs> we neglect the fact that we actually we've actually we're just inheriting the results of a, of the actions of a, of a lifetime. That uh, learning to to read, to uh, the, the way our academic situation is in the West, you are just thinking, 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 thinking. So it's hardly surprising that when we get to you know, adulthood, uh, that it's all still going, thinking, 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 thinking. You know, you can't just decide. To stop to not think it's like you can't just you know decide to to grow a couple of inches or to you know decide that your hair won't get gray or that, um, just decide to be a bit more charming today or decide not to get angry again. you know you can do all the deciding you like, but it's not going to work um, so yeah, when uh, f- uh, probably for most of us, one of the things that really got us interested in meditation in the first place was trying to do something about slowing the uh, the little hamster down on its on its treadmill. Yeah, remove the axle or something. <laughs> now usually the only way you can manage it is tranquilizing the 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 hamster by. Uh, drink or drugs or such like, to, to make the thing you know, just quieten down. <coughs> so we, we tend to, um, because the mind can be so you know, hyperactive, then uh, and we tend to, to, to believe that, well, if I could just stop it, if I could just stop thinking, then life would be so peaceful, wouldn't life be good? And so we make thought into the enemy, you know, the enemy of the meditator and so that our meditation practice can be uh, this kind of battleground between me, the meditator, and the invading thoughts. I remember I was was teaching a retreat some years ago, um, and there was this young fella who was um, doing a uh, a PhD in philosophy at Oxford University. And um, I said... uh, How's the retreat going, James? And he said, "Oh, it's great. I'm only thinking three things at a time instead of six. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I remember for I mean, This was one of the main reasons I got interested in meditation was just uh, seeing that my my mind was just, he could, just couldn't stop. It was just uh, too many years of, of um, you know, reading. Six books at the same time, and uh, endlessly stimulating the mind with all kinds of fascinating, useful, wonderful, interesting things. But um, then being with the results of all that stimulation, all that knowledge, all that that uh, education, um, and feeling immensely burdened by that, just um, pressured by the just the activity of mind, and. Uh, it was after I'd been in the monastery in Thailand for about maybe a year, or a year and a half. Uh, every week we have a, um, a, an all-night meditation vigil uh, on the four quarters of the moon, the new moon, the full moon, and the two half moons. And then um, at the, the monastery where I was staying, where the Westerners lived, um, they had just built a, a sauna. You might think this is a gross luxury to have in a Buddhist monastery, but actually, it's it's uh, traditional from the time of the Buddha that they would have a, a, what they call a firehouse, a chantagara, in the monastery. So, for the for the um, to benefit people's health and to a aid, uh, aid, uh, aid the aching muscles and bones. Anyway, so they had this uh, this sauna, and they used to have a they'd fire up the sauna the day after the all night sitting. Because you're generally pretty stiff and achy after all-night meditation. Um, so I think what had happened was that I'd been up all night and then I hadn't rested during the rest of the next day. And uh, and I was I was a novice at the time, so um, part of my job was getting the, s- the sauna ready and getting all the, fu- the firewood in and and filling up the water jar and so on. And I used to really like the sauna a great deal, and so I I, I was there sitting in it before everyone arrived, and then pottering about looking after it, and then I was um, sitting there after everyone had gone. So this is about nine or so in the evening, and uh, obviously by this time I'd been awake for about 36 hours, and, um, and I was sitting in the, in the sauna all by myself, and it's quite dim light. So it was a little, just a little brick, tiny brick building, really, and there was a one little lantern burning in the window, and otherwise completely dark in there. And uh, having then been in the sauna for a couple of hours, now I was just sitting there, and suddenly I realised it stopped. I'm not thinking. Wow! And I realised it was the first time in my life that my mind had ever stopped thinking, to my knowledge, that I never noticed. But wow! This is what the mind feels like when it's not thinking. Ah. So it is possible. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, had to be to at first driven to a state of complete exhaustion to to get that effect. But then, as time went by, obviously, it became kind of more and more easy, and one didn't need you know 115 degrees heat and and, uh, and uh, tar- physical tiredness to arrive at that. What I began to see was that that um even though with concentration you could make the mind stop thinking that it didn't actually stop suffering that um, that the um the process of thinking itself became clearer and clearer that that wasn't actually the problem you know, as as Time went by, and, and uh, I went more and more um, fully into the practice. Then I could see that you know the mind just generally slowed down and slowed down and slowed down. And then it became clear that it was uh, the problem had never really been just the presence of thought, but that kind of uncontrolled quality of, of uh, thinking when the mind is kind of running and racing, uh, just chattering away. And that um, the more that um, I set up the idea that uh, I wanted to, to get rid of thought in, in making thought the enemy, that you, you create this kind of tension, this, um, the whole approach towards the practice is, is uh, violent, aggressive, and so that you're, you're attacking thought, like in you're in a, a kind of shooting gallery and uh, I, I used to get this image of like the thoughts coming across my mind, like little ducks, you know, on, on a rifle range. The little ducks come across, <laughs> and, you know, kind of shooting the ducks down as they come onto the screen. You you can become quite a good shot at knocking the thoughts out of the mind. But then, even when the the, the you could stop the mind thinking in that way, it became clear that that wasn't that wasn't a mind that was totally beyond dukkha that was um, that was uh, awakened. It was just a, a mind without any thinking in it, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which is a
0: big, big disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh, so there's a there's a few themes here. Um, Firstly um, understanding how ab- how uh, that kind of um, random chattering of the mind takes shape, understanding how that forms um, and rather like I was describing the other evening with um, dependent origination there 's a kind of chain of causality that um, that is occurring with thought it isn't the, it isn't the case that the mind is just I- inherently thinking all the time, but it's, it's through the conditioning process that um, it gets that way. And the way that, that uh, it's described in the teachings is that um, it starts off with, uh, the m- with uh, feeling something. We, we see or hear or, or taste or smell or touch something, or a, a thought arises in the mind. And there's a feeling that comes with that, pleasant, painful, or neutral. Um, And then that um, whatever's being um, cognized in that way, whatever feeling that might be, wherever it's derived from, then we name that. And that, uh, this is, the the word uh, in Pali is sanya, which is most often translated as perception, but the the English word sign comes from the same root as sanya. So it's like a kind of designation. It's like the naming of something. I, that is the sound of a, of a, a dharma talk. That's the sound of a, a, car. That's this is the, the feeling of cloth on my skin. So it's like, before uh, there's a kind of raw, um, sensing. Of some stimulus, and then our memory moves in and names it and says, this is um, pleasant feeling, Uh, uh, this is uh, unpleasant feeling, this is a dog barking, this is a taste of lettuce, whatever it might be. And then, so there's a naming process, sanya, and then what we name, that which we name, then we uh, we think about it. So around that designation, then um, thought starts to cluster. This is called vitaka. Uh, And so we... Um, we think, I wonder who owns that dog? Is that the same dog I heard earlier today? So you get, you know, this um, conceptual thought forms arise around the naming process, and then the uh, vitaka, then um, as that takes off, then that blossoms into what is known as papancha-sanya-sankar, known as Papuncha in short, Papuncha. easy punchy name to remember. And this is conceptual proliferation, the, the mass of, of thoughts and obsessions, which um, uh, then burden the, burden the heart, burden the mind. So what's happening in this process, um, rather as like the, the dependent origination pattern, is it starts off with just a simple, raw experience. It's just a feeling, or just a, a sight or a sound, or a thought. You know, the, the, the brain is a sense organ, just like the eye or the ear or the nose, the tongue, the body. The brain is a sense organ, and, what it's, and, and the object of, of um, perception of the brain is thought. So just like light is the object of the eye, thought is the object of the brain. So that, first of all, there's just that raw contact uh, and uh, sense data, and then with that, there's no particular feeling of, of of self or other. There's just that experience, and then as this process kind of takes off, then it's uh, as the naming occurs, then it's a subject here, perceiving an object out there, me experiencing the sound of of that airplane, or um, me experiencing this memory. And then, as the, the thinking, the vitaka, kicks in, then that sense of, of self and other gets concretized, and then as that sort of takes off and runs away into the papancha, sannyasankar, the conceptual proliferation, then they, um, the sense of, of me, not only um, experiencing this, but being burdened and, and, and trapped, and so hemmed in, by that experience, by that, the, the presence of, of that thought that becomes more and more solid. And this is how the, the, the feeling of me um, uh, burdened by the world arises. This is a very simple process and as I'm describing it, I'm sure that most of you can relate that pattern in, uh, in your experience of meditation. You can see that occurring, how that, how that pattern Crystallizes and takes shape. So, as with um, the dependent origination, then by we start to recognize this pattern, and um, by seeing how it works, by seeing, you know, usually it's like you're halfway down some kind of uh, uh, intricate train of, uh, of thought you know you're halfway through your great novel and, uh, or, or recreating the saga of how your first marriage could have been <laughs> if only so the, the if only department is, is uh, inconceivably vast like an infinite sink of possibilities That um, then you think wait a minute wait a minute, wait a minute where are we and then you see, you can okay. There was the dog. There was the sound of the dog barking. And then I thought that reminds me of of um, Binker. That was a nice dog. We had Binker when we first got married. <laughs> you, you recognize the system? <coughs> the, Maybe if we hadn't had the dog, the marriage would have worked <laughs> out all right. You know, that damn dog. <laughs> and then you, you think, wait a minute, and you kind of have to track it back and see where it began. And so we see this, this kind of pattern occurring over and over and over. And you, you see how, how easy, and it just takes almost nothing. If the mind's propensity is to to, to, have a, to think habitually, Anything will trigger it off. <coughs> uh, I spent most of my youth listening to to rock music you know, at every opportunity i could I could manage so um, uh, i never I, I never practiced Buddhism or meditation when I was a layperson. My first contact was with a monastery in Thailand, and I just uh, entered the monastery and stayed there so uh, um, I had a kind of. Total immersion experience, kind of jumping in the deep end. But anyway, what I found was over the first few years was that um, my mind was just so filled with music, or was so used to listening to music that you know everything was a cue for a song. <laughs> you know, like in those um, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies, they say, that sounds like a cue for a song. Yeah. And <laughs> it would be anything like the a leaf falling off a tree, or a, you know, a car going past, or a, 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 a clanking of a of a kerosene tin, or, or just a comment that somebody would make, or even just the random thoughts coming up in my mind. You know, any any one word, you can find a place where it's a lyric, and then you know you get the whole album side. <laughs> and you know, I, I was just staggered by the the amount that the mind could remember. It's just amazing the uh, quantity of stuff that the mind remembers and conjures up. Because it's that's what its habitual mode is. It's it like it's it's used to chewing on things, so it just keeps recreating them. So. Um Now we, certainly, we, we can approach thought by um, just <coughs> trying to dissolve it. And this is certainly one way um, of, um, that we can, we can just, just through the, the use of, of wisdom, just recognize, we can recognize this is just a thought, it's impermanent, it's not self, it's not me or mine. And if the wisdom is acute enough, then we can just you know cut the the, the thinking off um like with the, the the sword of Manjushri. the this is the like the, the wisdom sword that just says this is not self this is impermanent this is just a thought drop it and if the mind is is sharp enough and if if it's well trained enough then then we can do that but it this it can easily turn into like the kind of aggressive process where we are thinking of, of thought as a kind of infection, you know, a kind of nasty, fungal growth that uh, is, is there kind of occupying the space between our ears and that we've got to do something about it to, to wipe it out and, and that we can have that very, kind, that very uh, aggressive or, or destructive attitude and, and be quite unconscious about that and not then aware of the, the negative consequences of that. I mean, if it is just you know, pure wisdom that, that we're using, and, there's, and it's just um, clarity of, of mind, then there won't be any kind of negative consequence. Um, but oftentimes, as Westerners, along with the, the, the capacity to, to think a lot, we have tremendous will. And so we can just wipe out. We can sometimes just stop thought just by will. But then it becomes a suppressive process and that you, know, you can hold it back for a certain amount of time just with, just with, with will. But then when the, when the, the will wobbles, then you know, the, the dam breaks and then you're, you're overwhelmed with, with uh, conceptual thought again. So, for, m- for myself, I found that the best way of, of dealing with it is, firstly, just you know, like recognizing the process of how trains of thought get initiated and how they take off, and, and then just learning to, to listen, learning to listen to thought as you would listen to the sound of the, the heating system. There's a very interesting heating system here, isn't it? A kind of beautiful little, it's like one of those John Cage pieces. Bing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dharma hall music. And uh, so just listening to the, your mind, just like you're listening to the, the sound of the traffic or the sound of the heating system or the creaking floorboards. And just uh, to be in that set, uh, space of listening, and I found that actually much more helpful uh, as a method. Um, of working with thought, um, rather than trying to, to to kind of stop it with with um, or cut it off, um, because there's a as a much um, there's a, a kind of a different mode um, that is employed within our heart um, between the the um, the difference between say cutting things off or just like listening to them, receiving them and um, not making anything out of them. So, uh, one of the most uh, um, useful uh, instructions I ever had on this was when, one a winter retreat one time when Ajahn Sumato said to us, you know, in the middle of a Dharma talk, he, he kind of paused and, and thought for a moment, and then said, all your thoughts are garbage. Just all of them. You might think there's some of them that are good. But basically, you should consider all your thoughts to be garbage. And uh, you you might think that's a kind of insulting thing to say. But I found a tremendous sense of relief. (laughs) um, Because one of the biggest problems with thought is that we tend to believe that it's all true. You know, if I'm thinking it, it must be true. And, then, and that we, we, and you know, it kind of sounds a bit facile when you when you state it, but that's generally what happens, isn't it? That something's going on in our mind, and we're looking upon it as a valid um, readout on on reality, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way at all. In fact, most of the time it isn't that way. It's just um, a collection of um, habitual judgments and perceptions, memories, ideas that have fed through this particular consciousness but which have, you know, may have some relationship to truth, but, you know, may not. And that um, if we take as our, our baseline the, the assumption that, that most of our thoughts are going to just be like the, you know, random noises of the heating system um, or the barking of a dog, that we're not making anything out of it. We're just not looking upon it having to be meaningful or true or realistic at all. Um, we find that, that we can relate to it in a much more um, uh, open way. We're not um, we're not so giving it a um, a value beyond what it really has. Because mostly our thoughts are, are just like our dream world. You know that occasionally you get a dream which is really significant. I find like maybe once or twice a year you'll get a dream that is definitely saying something. And you, you know, ah, right. You might not be certain exactly what it's about, but it's, it's really clear, oh, this, is, this one's got a message in it. Now, what, what does that mean? And this is, uh, But the other 364 days of the year, it's just the, the, the kind of dross of the leftovers of the day, you know, the, that, w- you know, that which got put in the refrigerator the kind of the leftovers that uh, have been rehashed a couple of times over already, and that um, there's nothing particularly significant or, or special or important about it. It's just the the resonances, the echoes of a, of a day's events and activities. So when we, we begin to look at thought in that way, we can just allow ourselves just, just to listen to it, to hear what it says, to not to, uh, reject it or suppress it, to not buy into it, to not um, make more out of it than, than is really there. And that very attitude of listening, itself, is, uh, has a liberating quality. A very kind of openness, that receiving of, uh, of thought. In, uh, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, along with Manjushri, one of the other Principal uh, bodhisattvas is called Avalokiteshvara or Guan Yin in Chinese, Guan Shi Yin. And uh, both Avalokiteshvara, which is the Sanskrit, and Guan Shi Yin, which is the Chinese, they, they have the same meaning, which is the one who listens to the sounds of the world. Uh, this is the, imbo- just as Manjushri is like the embodiment of wisdom and the cutting sword, which is the. And with wisdom you have these images of light, like uh, on the night of the, the Buddha described his enlightenment as Chakum udapadi, vision arose, nyanang udapadi, knowledge arose, vijja, knowing arose, Aloka udapadi, light arose. They're kind of images of light um, and seeing are to do with wisdom. Compassion is related to a hearing. And so the wisdom has this kind of uh, masculine, assertive element, and uh, listening, um, compassion, has this feminine, receptive uh, quality. So, even though um, Avalokiteshvara started out as a male figure in, in China, then the, the uh, gender was uh, transmuted over the years, and so Guanyin is known to most people as a, as a female uh, bodhisattva, as a feminine quality. Precisely because of this, this kind of Um, uh, receptive uh, undiscriminating um, open-hearted quality. It's also interesting in um, there's a a Chinese sutra called the the Shurangama Sutra and uh, all of the different bodhisattvas come to the Buddha and uh, the Buddha asks each one in turn what is your method for What's the method that you recommend for realising enlightenment? And each one comes along and describes a particular meditation practice. And then uh, Guan Yin comes along and then describes how... Um, uh, by listening to the... he um, describes this meditation on hearing. And um, <coughs> so she says how she, she lives at this place on the, on the cliffs by the ocean and listens to the sound of the sea, starts off the meditation by listening to the, the roaring of the sea, and then taking that sound of the, the roaring ocean and then turning it inwards and listening to the inner sound. Actually, the, the phrase is returning the hearing to listen to the ear organ. And then um, by returning the hearing and, and listening to the, to the, uh, the ear organ, listening to the, and then they use the phrase, listening to the self-nature, then the self-nature realizes the true way. And um, uh, some years ago we were, uh, Ajahn Sumedha was teaching uh, a retreat, it was at a Chinese monastery in California, and um, for years the, the people in this monastery have been puzzling over exactly what this strange phrase, listening to, returning the hearing to listen to the ear organ. It's like diff, dis, which is quite distinct from the physical ear. They couldn't figure out what that meant, and he was teaching this meditation on listening to the sound of silence, the nada sound. And so, um, then they, uh, they suddenly realized, ah, oh, this is actually what they must be teaching. This is, this is perhaps the, uh, the shurangama samadhi that's being described in his this sutra, is this, this very active kind of inner listening. By listening to that, the inner sound, it brings the, the heart into this position of uh, acute awareness and receptivity. And then, um, not that, that the, the inner sound itself has some kind of magical property, but it's um, by bringing the mind to that um, openness and alertness and receptivity to, uh, to that sound, then that sound is like a symbolic of the, um, the presence of ultimate truth. It's like, because this, say, the sound is always there, we don't have to create it. It is, um, it's like fee- almost featureless. It is, uh, it's ever present. So it's a very good symbol for for ultimate reality itself. Um, and then in this sutra, then the the Buddha then praises this method of uh, of Guanyin as the this is the best method for enlightenment. It's uh, the meditation on hearing, on listening. So this was kind of, um, was uh, described to us after you know, Ajahn Samad had been teaching this, me- this meditation on the Nāda sound for some years. And so he was kind of tickled by this uh, connection to the um, Buddhist tradition, because he thought, you know, he didn't realize there was um, so much, there had been uh, so much emphasis or... or use had been made of that within um, Buddhist meditation practice. Also, what, I, what you find is that, just that, that developing that quality of listening, and uh, for myself, I've, I tend to use the listening to the, the sound of silence um, more than I, I use the, the, the feeling of the breath, partially because it, it, it translates so well between just uh, being a meditation object itself and then just creating the attitude of listening, listening to thought, listening to the world around us, and that, that quality of, of compassion, of, of acceptance, of non-discrimination. and that um, So then thought can be there, but then we can, we can treat thought just in the same way as we can treat you know, a feeling in the body, or a sound that we hear, or a, a smell or a taste, that it's just a, a sense object perceived by the mind, just as a sound is perceived by the ear or a light a form is perceived by the eye, why why single out thought to be such a, a troublemaker? You know, when it's seen in its proper perspective, when it's really seen, as just another sense object. And if we understand it in the right way, just as we can be totally at peace and awake and be seeing or hearing or feeling, so too there can be thought in the mind and it can be no obstruction whatsoever to the... Natural peace and and uh, happiness uh, of the mind, so that you, know, you begin to you can begin to see that the thought is whether thought is there or not is not the issue. It's the way in which we relate to it that uh, that makes the big difference, and that when we we have um, the right attitude, right view then um, we're able to uh, establish that quality of of knowing, of awareness, and as feelings appear, sights and sounds, memories, thoughts, ideas, they come, they go, they change. We don't have to push them away, we don't have to, to hang on to them, we don't have to be intimidated by them, we don't have to get drunk on them, they just are what they are. So that, um, even though it's um, very pleasant for the mind to be calm and to not think, it shouldn't, we shouldn't praise that as being the be-all and end-all. Because, uh, like I was saying before, the mind can be in a state of not thinking, but it's not necessarily a liberated state. You know, you could take um, Thorazine, have a lobotomy, you know, you won't be thinking, but that's not if that was the way to Nibbana, then the Buddha would have recommended it, you know. Let's just mix these herbs together, you know, take a few cups full and you know, everything will be fine. So it's it's not a matter of, of not thinking as being the, the synonymous with with liberation. Because even though there might be no thought, it's like by it's like if we close our eyes or we, we block up our ears or we just don't sense anything. That doesn't mean that we're liberated, it just means that the screen is blank. That's all. It's not, it's not a, an exalted state at all. Um, to be able to control thought, to be able to think when you want to think, and to refrain from thinking when you want to refrain from it, is an extremely handy skill to possess. I, you know, obviously I grant that. But um, I think it's really crucial to um, not judge your meditation on um, on the basis of, of trying to stop thinking. And to really view, look at, at thought in this different way. And so this is why, say, I've been describing in the last couple of days, this quality of just listening to the mind, <gasps> learning to, um, to know uh, the... Um, to look upon the present moment from the, the basis of, of an open-hearted awareness. And to, to not be too particular about the object of consciousness, but to put as much emphasis, to put more, more emphasis on the, the nature of the subject. The one who's, uh, the one who's knowing. Also, um, with thinking, along with just the, uh, the like, right attitude or, or understanding of, of thought, then um, another aspect is that reflective thought can be an immensely helpful tool in meditation practice, in spiritual, spiritual practice. And this is something that's not often talked about. I mean, thought is generally looked upon as a, a, you know as a, a kind of an intruder in the mind but if you look at the buddha's teachings if you look at the the the, the suttas, then you see over and over again the buddha describing the use of reflective thought as a tool um, wisely reflecting one considers thus uh, like I was describing like the buddha's on the buddha's night of the buddha's enlightenment he was reflecting on, on causality, dependent origination. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of different ways in which the Buddha encourages that use of, of wise reflective thought. Um, in, uh, in Pali, there's several different terms. One is uh, Dhamma Vijaya, which means investigation of Dhamma or investigation of reality. Dhamma Vijaya is, uh, is one of the, what do they call, the seven factors of enlightenment. When the mind is totally enlightened, is awake, it is, it is naturally investigating and, and contemplating the, um, the qualities of, of the experience. It is looking for pattern and meaning in, in the experience of the present moment. Another of the words used to describe this is so manasikara. Um, which literally means uh, a, uh, attending to the origin or the source. Uh, yoni is like the source or the origin, the womb. Manasikara is is to reflect or to um, to direct thought. So it's like uh, pointing the 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 mind at the origins of things, of the, the source of things, how they how they function. And so. Um, the Buddha used this uh, uh, analogy, he said, it's like you use a thorn to dig out another thorn. If you've got a thorn in your skin, that you, you use another thorn to dig it out with, so that if the you use thought to work on um, the mind's habitual patterns of thinking. So just as I was describing this morning, uh, in, when we have in the morning chanting, the reflections on anicca, dukkha, Anatta. This is like, we're training the mind to reframe the way that we conceive of ourselves. Like, if the mind is saying, oh, uh, you know, I'm no good, or um, my back, you know, I've really got a bad problem with my back, or um, I'm really getting places in my meditation now. You know, these are you know, familiar enough thoughts, or I wonder when the bell's going to ring. These are uh, ordinary, everyday thoughts that we have. Um, but then when you, you're using these forms of reflection, like the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self, then it's like, we, we then take that, what the, the thinking mind has created, oh my back is, my back is really hurting, um, then say, well wait a minute, do we need to phrase it that way? There is a pain there's an experience of pain, and I c- it can be located um, in what and what I call my back, but is it um, is that place you know is that place where the pain is found? Is that really me? is that mine? Is it my pain, or is there actually just in this moment this experience which is which is called pain, which can be um, conventionally placed in a particular space, in point in three-dimensional space. Uh, Is it really me? Is it mine? Is it a a permanent problem? So we're using these um, simple reflections of looking at the way we create our world, the way we create ourselves, the way we create the the world around us, and... If you like, dismantling our habitual perceptions that, that create a solid self, uh, linear time, three-dimensional space, and call these absolute reality. So we're, we're like taking these simple themes and using them as investigative tools. Now, say they're teaching on, on not-self, selflessness, anatta, this often gets presented as a a kind of philosophical statement, a metaphysical statement. Like, you know, the Buddha said there is no self. And uh, sometimes this gets presented in in very kind of dogmatic ways, like, Buddhists believe we have no soul. (laughs) We're soulless. Um, But that's not what the Buddha was teaching at all. It's not a a metaphysical statement. What it's, it's saying is like, This is a way of examining experience, so that when the mind says, uh, my mind, or my back, or my memories, um, then there's this way of examining examining it, to pick it up and say, well, what is that minus? What is that feeling of, of self? What is that feeling of identity? Where is it? What does it look like? What shape is it? How do you characterize it? Where is it? so that we're, we're um, unraveling the habitual assumptions that we make about ourselves, about the world, because those are the very things that, that, that create limitation, bondage, and uh, obstruct the innate freedom and uh, happiness, purity of the heart. We don't necessarily realize this was happening, but as we use these, these forms of reflection, where... We're like using these are the thorns that we, we use to pick out the other thorns. The thorns of seeing, you know, my life. I was born at this, uh, this time, and, you know, I am this age, and I'm going to die at some point. I am this person. I am a woman. I am a man. I'm young. I am old. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm unemployed. I'm a monk. I'm a layperson. They're all the I am's. So just to, it's a, a thorn to kind of, to, to work at those assumptions. So is that true? What is a monk? What is a layperson? Twenty years ago, a few people gathered together in a building in northeast Thailand, made some noises, moved some bits of cloth around, and then there was monk Amaro. You know, so what's a monk? You know? if they made some of the, if some of the noise some of the noises were different then the, the ceremony wouldn't have been valid and so I, I would be not a monk you know or you just change your clothes and you stop shaving your head and then you know, then where did the monk go so you know, it's to to use reflective thought as a way of uh mapping our in a landscape of what we call ourselves, how we refer to ourselves and uh, so, uh, and this is a, a, an immensely powerful tool that uh, the uh, we really can uh, make use of all the time and it 's not just something that um, we sort of use as we 're going about the place and uh, and so on. Sometimes people get the... F- you know, you, you, you're talking about this subject and you're saying, well, you know, you can use the reflections on impermanence or reflections on the, the four elements or reflections on, on death or, or on the, the um, reflections on um, the Brahma Viharas, the divine states of mind or the reflections on um, selflessness. And they say, well, is it all right to do that when I'm meditating? like the, the kind of the sitting posture or walking, the walking posture is some kind of sacred um, space that no thought should be allowed into, you know, n- no visas will be issued. That's it. When we're meditating, it's exactly the best time to use uh, investigative thought. That's when you, the mind is at its most sharp and clear. This is when you can get the, the deepest results. So that um, a way to use this then is, um, say for example, when uh, the mind is, is quite calm and focused, then um, we can use reflective thought to investigate certain areas of the teachings. Like, say, well, uh, what is selflessness? Or um, what does death mean to me? Or uh, how do I relate to the idea of my own death? Ajahn Chah used to say, every you should three times a day, morning and midday and then evening, you should ask yourself the question, "Why was I born?" So I- when the mind is kind of steady and focused and clear, then you can use this kind of um, environment. It's the most fertile environment and. Just to use this kind of inquiry, like, how does desire lead to grasping? How does feeling turn into desire? How does desire lead to grasping? What is that? You know, you pick up an aspect of the teaching, or, or some element of your life, like, you know, a relationship that you have, that you're madly in love with someone, or you're, you're uh, trying to break up with someone, or, or you have uh, ongoing conflicts with your, your parents, or or some aspect of your world, and then to to consciously bring that up so that you, you, you establish some kind of concentration, focus, and then you can either just state what's going on in your mind, like, um, I love so-and-so. Just state that. You know, what's what's really going kind to of there for you? You know, I want to be with this person for the rest of my life. That's the feeling that's there. And state that to yourself, and then just to, to witness what arises out of that. What the, what's going along with that? what What's contributing to it? What does it bring with it? What uh, effects does that have? Or or one that I used to use a lot when I, I first went into the monastery was, um, I would just think the word mother. I have a very wonderful mother, with, uh, had a, a somewhat fraught relationship when, and uh, particularly when I t- took off to the Far East and became a Buddhist monk without giving anyone any warning. So I get these, these slightly um, tense letters from England on a regular basis. And, uh, and so uh, I would find that my mind could, would just get, you know, go charging off trying to explain and to my mother, what, uh, how Buddhism was great and wonderful, and how she should be like this and she shouldn't think like that. And, and so I would, just, I would just go into my hut and, and sit down and, uh, in the meditation. I'd just, just think the word mother and just watch what followed, like the, the volcano, you know, <laughs> Mount St. Helens going off. <laughs> and just to be able to witness the, the patterns of reactivity so you establish a sense of, of, um, of, of calm and then you, you drop in. That. I mean, it doesn't have to be an emotionally reactive thing. It can be just uh, an, an actually investigative thought. Using reflective thought has a whole different quality to the papancha kind of... I mean, you, you can use it to sort of, like I was describing, to sort of drop in the seed and watch the explosion, watch the papancha happening. But um, more uh, more usefully, as a way of investigating elements of your life, uh, elements of the teaching, you say, well, what is that about? You know, there is this, um, why do I tend to react in such and such a way? When I meet certain people, then, why do I get so shy? Or um, when I'm with other people, why do I kind of, uh, get over-enthusiastic or excited. Um, why do I react in that way? What's, what's behind that? So you, you put a question like that, or you make some kind of statement, and then it's like you listen for a response, or you see what comes up out of that. So you make a statement, and then just kind of let it sit there. And then some kind of association will come, some some thought or some intuition will probably arise. You go, aha, I see well, I do that because I'm—I fill up the space because when I meet a new person, uh, I'm afraid they're going to reject me. So I kind of swamp them with interesting things to say. Aha. What am I afraid of? And then, like listening. Ah. And then you know, maybe something will arise, or maybe it'll just be nothing in particular will we'll be clear. Hmm. So, I don't know what it is. I'm afraid of something in me. I know that there's 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 fear or something, but I don't know what it is. Uh huh. So then, you know, if, uh, you're just going to file it away under under investigation, and then sometime later, you know, you just come back to it, pick it up again, or then you, having noticed that, then you watch how your reactions function in a particular situation. Uh huh. I'm doing it again. And what's that about? And sometimes I've like, found particular themes that I've spent like years, just like, what is that about? Why do I operate that way? Or, that really doesn't make sense to me. Hmm. And you just keep leaving it there in the you know, mystery section. And you just you know, every so often come back to it, pick it up, and look at it, and then after some time, aha, oh. Usually when you're looking in the opposite direction, you know, suddenly, oh, that's what it's about. So, in using thought in this way, you're not, you're not doing it like we're demanding some kind of certain answer. You're not looking for a fixed answer. You're open to any possibility. And if, uh, if an answer a conce- in conceptual thought arrives, fine. If nothing arrives, fine. Um, it's like you're being your own um, analyst. You're, you're kind of asking yourself the questions, you're drawing upon, you're consulting the oracle of your own heart. Because that's that's what knows, like in our heart you know, we are, there's a, 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 an infinite wealth of intuition, and so we're just using this kind of method for drawing upon our own wisdom, our own sensitivity, our own knowledge. And so that it's, if you find, as you do this, then the the, the kind of conceptual mind starts to take over, then there's a very definite change of energy, you've got the kind of the Papuncha hamster starts starts racing, and you think, wait, 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 hold it, hold it, yes. okay. You go back, come back to the breath, or to the sound of silence, calm the mind down. So, okay, what is that about? You go back to the question again, or the, or the, in what you're investigating. Yeah, I, I found, like, certain elements of dependent origination, like, for ten years, I really couldn't figure out what they were about, and I just, okay, well, one day, you know, I might get that. Okay, this no rush, as and when. And when you, you handle things with that ease, it's a very different mode of, of um, operating to our normal way, because the mind wants to understand everything. And even if it doesn't understand, it'll, it'll have some belief. You know, we'll make an opinion or a belief and hang on to that, just to fill up the space of not knowing. But this whole method of, of reflection, of investigation, inquiry, it depends upon not knowing. It depends upon us being ready to not know, and just to allow there to be mystery, and, and then to let um, certain uh, aspects of, of the known arise out of the mystery, but not to, not to be threatened, or, or feel that we've got to kind of have a, a model that explains everything. From there, when we're faced with the unknown, from, from the ego's point of view, the unknown is frightening, is threatening. But from the the point of view of the of the, the heart, the unconditioned mind, then the unknown is, is mysterious, but it's it's beautiful. You know, you don't you don't have to fill up the unknown with with a belief or a concept or an idea. You can just leave it as mysterious because ninety nine point nine 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 percent of it will continue to be mysterious anyway. You know, we there's no way that we can conceptually understand the whole thing. and uh one of the actually the um the most useful aspects of using reflective thought in this way is even though we can use it to arrive at certain understanding, dealing with doubts or, or, or wanting to to um, know the pattern of the of life better a third aspect the the last thing i I'd like to address is how we can, in a very direct way, use it to, particularly to understand the assumptions that we make about, about identity, about self. And there's a, um, one of the most common ways in which this form of, of reflective thought is used is a direct inquiry into the nature of the subject, the, the, the feeling of self. So you can use a, a question, or a statement like, "I am a person," or "I am Susan or Harry," or "Who am I?" "What am I?" And that in exactly the same way, you wait till the mind, you make the, the mind focus and steady, and then into that space, you just drop the question. What am I? What is a human being? What is that? And then as you as you as the question is formed then what happens is that our habitual assumptions about what we are are, are punctured they hesitate there's a moment where the the um, that that very questioning it's like turning the, the, the camera onto the photographer. Like it's, oh, you know, no, 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 no I'm the photographer. <laughs> You're the subject. Like, it's the sense of self is it's kind of startled. It trips over its own feet. And it's, for a moment, it's it's interrupted. The self-creation mechanism is interrupted. And so, in that moment, when when that there's a there's a gap and that the mind is awake there's clarity and no sense of self and then probably in a mo- in a very short period of time then the, the 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 thinking mind starts wading in with all kinds of verbal answers let's see because you, what you're, you're using this kind of practice for is simply to create that kind of interruption in the flow of, of uh, self-creation. So that as the mind comes back with, well, you know, I'm a person. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a man. That's what I am. You know, I'm, I'm a, what do you mean, what's a human being? Everybody knows. I say, well, what is that? When you use the words, when you use the word person or man, What is that? Is it a body? Is it a mind? Is the mind male? What parts of the mind can that apply to? What is that? So that you're um, you're using this kind of um, pattern of approach, so whatever the conceptual answers them, the thinking mind throws up, you keep challenging them. You sort of use different angles. It's not like just repeating it, like, like, who am I, like a mantra, but it it has to be an actual quality of inquiry. You're really asking the question, or or making a a statement in a, in a, a distinct and emphatic way. So that then that it creates this um, hesitation, and then this it's like a, like a a gap opens up, and as that as that occurs, then just let yourself let let the the heart just rest in that in that space in that gap. Just keep keep going back to that. Keep. Uh, Ar- arousing that kind of inquiring, keep going back. What is that? What is it? And then you begin to realize that the, the silence of the mind is actually the answer to all questions. That's that's the answer. We call it silence, i mean but it's it at that moment there 's a, a, a recognition of the reality of of what is what we are, what life is in its in its essence, and so that uh, this is a very useful tool to help us uh, realize that quality that essential uh, nature of mind that is uh, so easily obscured, so densely obscured by the patterns of our conditioning. And it's, uh, it's, intrig- it's kind of ironic that it's actually the use of thought that in some respects can bring about this most clarifying of, of insights. I think I will leave the subject there. Like like thinking talking can go on forever. (laughs) So I will spare you any more. Anyone?